6 p.m. hour, followed by Counterspin um, at 6.30. 7 p.m. is, uh, yes, 7 p.m. is uh, Building Bridges with uh, Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Uh, 8 p.m. is Housing Notebook with uh, Scott Somer and Vajra Kilgour. Um, 8 and 9 p.m., The Joy of Resistance with Fran Luck. 10 p.m. is... Night Shift with Mike Sargent and at midnight from the soundboard with some guy named Reggie Johnson. I don't know who he is, but I heard a lot of things about him. I hope they're all good. (laughs) With that said, stay tuned for the WBAI evening news coming up. It is now 6 p.m. Good evening. In the news tonight, Black Lives Matter protests continue to cross New York City this week, including a massive Black Trans Lives Matter rally Sunday in Brooklyn. Atlanta is reeling from a police shooting of a 27-year-old man that has been ruled a homicide. The LGBT community won a major victory today at the Supreme Court. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, June fifteenth, two 2020. For the third consecutive weekend, Black Lives Matter supporters poured into the streets of New York City for numerous marches and rallies. The protests were generally peaceful and free of the police rioting that had marred earlier protests. On Sunday afternoon, many thousands of people joined a Black Trans Lives Matter protest in front of the Brooklyn Museum. The children came. They came, honey. When you ask, they come. This park is full. This is what it's about. We need representation, and we need to tell people that we're here. We've always been here. We're just showing you where we are now. We're, we're, we're in your face now. We've always been here. In Atlanta, the police shooting of Rayshard Brooks, a 27-year-old black man outside a Wendy's restaurant, has led to the resignation of Atlanta's police chief. The incident began Friday night after Brooks fell asleep in his car in the drive through lane outside the fast food restaurant. When confronted by two Atlanta police officers, he grabbed the taser from one officer and ran away, only to be shot twice in the back. Brooks' death has been ruled a homicide. Protesters responded to Brooks' killing by burning down the Wendy's restaurant. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms promised Brooks' family that his death would not be in vain. To the family of Mr. Brooks, there are no words strong enough to express how sincerely sorry I am for your loss. I do hope that you will find some comfort in the swift actions that have been taken today and the meaningful reforms that our city will implement on behalf of the countless men and women who have lost their lives across this country. In Minneapolis, the city council there on Friday unanimously approved a resolution declaring it will create a, quote, transformative new model of policing in the city following last month's police killing of George Floyd. The resolution starts a year-long process to create a new public safety model that will replace the city's police department. This is Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender. 
to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. In Seattle, hundreds of Black Lives Matter protesters continue to hold down a six-square-block police-free autonomous zone in the Capitol Hill neighborhood near the center of the city. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, has been described by Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin as a, quote, block party, while Fox News and other right-wing media outlets have reported on it obsessively, if not accurately depicting Chaz as a politically correct dystopia overrun with radical anarchists. Here is one member of Chaz contemplating what the future holds for the space. How does this end? That's a good question. Ideally, what this looks like is the city takes us seriously, that we need cultural change, and that that happens by the standards that we set in our laws. The only reason why we have made police unwelcome here is because their presence has been largely antagonistic. While they aren't here, there's nothing but peace and humanity over there. And it is beautiful. We will have more on the Black Lives Matter movement and its growing cultural impact after the break. In other news, the novel coronavirus continues to rage around the world and in many parts of the United States where the number of fatalities is approaching 116,000. The 14-day average of new COVID-19 infections is going up in 23 states, according to the New York Times, including the Sunbelt states of Florida, Texas, and Arizona, which all swiftly reopened their economies, heeding the call of President Donald Trump. Trump is scheduled to hold his first campaign super rally in more than three months in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on Saturday. COVID-19 fatalities are soaring in a number of Latin American nations as well, including Mexico, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, and Brazil, which is now running second to the United States with more than 43,000 COVID-19 fatalities. While the number of cases in New York is way down, scenes of revelers gathered outside bars in the East Village and other parts of the city this weekend has led Andrew Cuomo to warn that those establishments could lose their state liquor licenses And finally, some good news from the Supreme Court, where the LGBT community won a major victory today when the court issued a 6-3 ruling that forbids workplace discrimination against gay and transgendered people under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which forbids discrimination on the basis of sex. Writing for the majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, said... Quote, an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender defies the law. We'll be back with more after this short break.
That was A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. I want to share some uh, good news. First of all, the Independent's print edition is back on the streets of New York. We went all digital with our coverage at the height of the pandemic. But now that the people are back in the streets, so are we. You can find the paper in our red and white news boxes around the city, or you can also read it online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. Joining us on the show, uh, joining us on the show this evening for our first segment to discuss his article in the new issue of The Independent is Nicholas Powers. Nick is a professor of African American literature at SUNY Old Westbury out on Long Island and a longtime contributing writer for the Indy. He has the kickoff article uh, in the new issue of the paper titled Why We Explode. Nick, thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Well, thanks for having me, John. Hope you guys can hear me clearly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We hear, hear you uh, loud and clear. Uh, so these uh, the George Floyd protests of the past uh, three weeks, I think, have taken almost everybody by surprise by the, the magnitude of the protests in terms of number of people participating, uh, the towns and cities around the country uh, uh, day after day where people are, are coming out and, and saying Black Lives Matter. In your in your article, you describe the the pain uh, that black people in this country experience as a, a sea of gasoline, and George Floyd's death as a lit match that was tossed into that sea of gasoline. Do you want to uh, elaborate on that and 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 how you feel that's fueling these protests? George Floyd's brutal murder on the video. It ignited a, a rage that constantly pools and is added to inside the bodies of people of color in general and black people in particular. And even if you're a person of color and you were never harassed by the police or uh, never were intimidated or stopped and frisked or put in jail over a stupid fine like, say, I was, um, there is every single day a kind of constant alarm that not all, but most of us, many of us, have in the back of our heads. It's like a racial radar. And you're always kind of navigating the world around you and trying to avoid um, embarrassing yourself racially or being embarrassed racially or um, finding yourself in a situation where a humorous conversation could take a turn and be at your expense or feeling that you have to prove yourself twice as hard because there's more suspicion about you, say, at work. Or if you're on a date, not knowing if you're being fetishized or, um, or if you're being um, dismissed because of your color or your hair texture. Um, so racism kind of saturates in very small and some ways that oftentimes are we feel them, but we kind of just have to live through them because you still have to make your your way to the to the end of the day. You still have to you know get your laundry done and get your work done and take care of your kids and meet your family. And so, a lot of us have to kind of bury those small, really kind of tiny uh, moments of racism in our bodies. And then on top of that, there is oftentimes the stop and frisking, although that's been uh, thankfully kind of uh, declined now, 
spot at the stop and frisking, or if you are getting stopped by the cops, afraid that you'll be insulted or that if not lethal force, you know, uh, physical force will be used. Um, or if you're being stopped just a suspicion, even if the cop is totally professional and polite, are you being stopped only because you're being profiled? And so all of this just builds and builds and builds inside of the body. And most people carry it around beneath the conscious waterline. It's just the weight that you feel inside of you. And it's this kind of sea of gasoline. And so when we see the the brutal murder of George Floyd on on our cell phones or on the TV screen at a restaurant or on the newspapers, it, it falls like a lit match and it, it 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 incinerates, it ignites a lot of that repressed anger that people have inside of them. And then on top of that, that when that lit match falls in, you know, you see the face of George Floyd, but then you also see Tamir Rice. You also see, you know, Sandra Bland. You also see Eric Gardner. You also see Trayvon Martin. And then, you know, you see the Scottsboro boys and maybe lynching photos. And then beyond that, you may hear those, you may remember the stories in your own family, informal, intimate family history that's not recorded in the book, but it's passed down from one generation to another, from mouth to ear, over, you know, breakfast or maybe on the porch or on the stoop. And so we hear these stories and they're passed down to us. And so that lit match illuminates that whole kind of inner world of uh, the diasporic history of uh, trauma created by white racism. So that, that is one of the elements that exploded. Um, but then the other major theme of the piece is that sometimes people have become so numb to it, like the, the, they've created such a kind of layer of scar tissue um, over their their pain that they almost can't even feel angry. Um, or if they do, it's, it's, it's a very cynical anger that is hopeless, uh, resigned. And so sometimes I, I talk to people who are standing on the corner and they'll talk and I'll hear them curse about uh, the, the death of George Floyd, um, but they won't go to the protest because they've seen this over and over and over again and they haven't seen any real change. And so rather than become vulnerable, uh, they rather just shut down. And so there's two reactions happening. You know, there's the reaction of those who still are hopeful enough to feel rage. And then there's the reaction of those who are too cynical um, to feel rage. And, and do you feel like there's uh, something different happening this time? And obviously there's been many protests over uh, police violence and police killings uh, over the years. Uh, um, does, does this feel different in some way? And, and if so, why do you feel that way? Well, one thing that's different is that my white gentrifying neighbors are on the rooftop chanting Black Lives Matters. And there was a there was a rubble of a church that had been you know fallen and collapsed years ago. It was just rubble. And then in the past two years, new condos came in. And on that condo when it was just being constructed, someone spray painted "Death to Gentrifiers," uh, which I thought was was crude. But I, I just I, I got the sentiment that people did not want gentrifiers in their neighborhood, raising the rent, and et cetera. And then people started you know getting the condos or the apartments in the new building. Uh, mostly white, but not all. Some were middle class black and Latino, with some was mixed. But they kind of kept to themselves. And recently, I've actually seen some of them at the protest, and they have chalked up the sidewalk, and they have posted signs, and they go on the roof and they're saying Black Lives Matter. So some of the older neighbors 
are looking at the new neighbors and they're kind of confused. They're like, well, what do we make of white gentrifiers now passionately saying Black Lives Matter? So it's a bit of a kind of odd situation. But when one pulls the lens back a little bit, and when I went to uh, Black Trans Lives Matters rally in March that happened um, this past Sunday, one thing I noticed was that what's different now is that an immense amount of white progressives who are not necessarily attached to any specific organization have come out like a tidal wave. And so one has to ask why now? And I would say there's a few things. One, it's been building since, I would say, Sean Bell, that the images of police brutality have become more ubiquitous because of cell phones. So the farther reach of the right. cell phone and the more power of social media, that second, Occupy Wall Street has also politicized a generation of white progressives who are making, using democratic uh, appeals uh, to fight against inequality, and they were beaten out of those tent cities by the police. So they've been brutalized by the police. And finally, we have the quarantine, which has created this huge amount of emotional pressure of people being locked in their homes. And so when you add all of this up and shake it and stir it, um, you really have a stick of social dynamite. Mm. And... Uh, uh I guess last question. Uh, time, time's running out for us here. Um, are, are, are you hopeful? You you have a, a two year old son. That, do you think he might uh, come of age in a world where uh, racism is, if not go- uh, gone, uh, substantially uh, less of a, a force in our lives? I think what happens in the next two three years is really going to determine that, because if if the racism that has split white America into um, white America that sees itself as part of a kind of collective multiracial nation and another part which does, sees itself as an embattled uh, majority that is possibly going to become a minority and sees itself in its taxes and its money being siphoned off and given to the undeserving poor like welfare queens, then you know, we, we have that racism that split white America. Um, and if we have what seems to be in the street, a turning point of progressive white youth, then that racist appeal, mostly done by Republicans, uh, saying that, you know, don't vote for social programs because all those social programs are really just going to benefit people who don't look like you and they're going to disempower you. That racist appeal won't work anymore. And if that doesn't work, then you'll see the possibility of the United States leapfrogging and finally getting getting to a place where Denmark, Norway, um, Netherlands, France, Germany, most you know, most of the European countries already are, which is you have a strong you know social safety net, strong welfare net, so that people don't starve, they have access to free college, Medicaid, Medicare for all. And if you have that, then you have the basis for relieving some of the class tension. Um, And class tension is one of the things, not the only, but it's one of the things that fuels racism. Right. I guess we'll we'll see in these, uh, yes, in these coming years where the the United States can finally be a place where 
uh, the abundance is uh, shared uh, for all, uh, regardless of uh, race or uh, sex or gender or any other thing that uh, eluded us for 400 years. But uh, maybe maybe this moment is a, a, a breakthrough moment. Uh, Nicholas Powers, thank you for joining us this evening on the WBAI Evening News. Hey, you're welcome. It's good to hear you, John. You bet. All right. Thank you again, Nicholas Powers, a longtime indie contributing writer, has an article in our new issue called Why We Explode, which is a really uh, brilliant, evocative piece on uh, the origins of the Black Black Lives Matter protests that are happening right now. So um, we will be back after this, after a, a short break. Our next guest is... Uh, both a nurse and a democratic socialist who's running for a state assembly in central Brooklyn, even as the pandemic persists. Does she have the cure for what ails New York state politics? Stay tuned. That was more of A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. 
before we uh, return uh, to our uh, conversations, I want to remind everyone that DEI is in the middle of its spring fund drive. I encourage everyone who can give uh, to do so and do so generously and help keep WBAI on the air and beaming its 50,000-watt signal across the greater New York area. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to WBAI.org. Again, that phone number is 516-620-3602. Well, unfortunately, our, our second guest was not able to join us. Uh, it's uh, live radio, but we're fortunate uh, to have uh, Nick Powers uh, with us again. And so we'll continue our conversation about the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and, and Nick's uh, writing about it in the independent. Uh, Nick, good to have you back with us for the remainder of the show. Oh my God, it's deja vu, John. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, we're, uh, re- reading your article and then the conversation we were having uh, earlier in the show uh, made me think back to uh, back to 2007 when you wrote extensively for the independent about uh, the Sean Bell case and the aftermath of, of the three cops who uh, pumped uh, 50 bullets into his body, being found not guilty uh, by a, a judge. Can you talk about then and now and how far, it, while there's much still to be resolved, how far things have come both in this city and in this country since you were, I mean, you were very much present at that time? When the news of Sean Bell's murder came out, there, there's always something excessive that ignites the rage of the people. And one of the things that was excessive was exactly as you said, the 50 bullets. So it was a hail of 50 bullets. Not all of them hit Sean Bell, but enough that tore up his neck and his body. And then obviously his two friends um, also were struck by bullets. And, and people counted in the protest marches to 50. And that was a, both a, an incredibly unifying chance that was rhythmic, that was powerful, that was clear, that was easy. But it was also very long. When he counted to 50 and he thought each number was a bullet, it solidified in the minds of all of those who were marching that, wow, this is, that they were so excessive. And then, so that became a symbol of the excessive nature of the NYPD, or at least some sections of the NYPD and their excessive violence um, and quick turn to violence and how it robbed this young man of his life, especially the night before he was going to get married. So those were the two kind of excessive things about the Sean Bell um, murder that that struck the imagination of, I would say, black and Latino New York. And the reason I say that is when I went to his funeral, um, you know, I went there at first, you know, as a reporter. And then, you know, I had my notebook and, you know, the church. But the, the church line was all people of color. And on the other side, the media that did show up was mostly white media. And I just felt as a man of color, uh, you know, my family's New Rican and born and raised in the city, and I just put my notebook away, and I joined the line. And I walked in, and it was a very deep sense of, of kind of sobriety and somberness. And I approached the casket, and I saw his face. And it was, you know, it was the face of a really handsome young man. And it's, it's as if the body was shocked at how full of life it was and how quickly it was taken away. And um, and I felt like I was looking at the face of a 21st century guy like that. So when I had left, there was Al Sharpton, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton gave a, a eulogy. And you can hear his words from inside the church, but you can hear the angry chants of those of us outside. 
and the main thing was that it felt like those of us um, with the we people of color, mostly black and Latino, were alone in the city that was stopping and frisking us, that was putting us in jail, that was presuming us guilty, that was uh, shooting us 50 times. And this had been a tradition in New York. And we had known of these stories of police brutality, again, informally from our We, we have about 30 more seconds, Nick. Okay. So all that to say is that um, we felt like we were alone. And the main difference between then and now is that when you look at the state of white progressives, we no longer feel alone, and we feel like we have a chance. Hmm. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Also, have uh, some good news from uh, that came out today. Uh, Police Commissioner Dermot Shea announced that uh, he's disbanding his 600 uh, uh, police officer uh, plainclothes team, and it was plainclothes officers way back in 2006 who jumped Sean Bell outside that nightclub the night before he was supposed to get married. So it took a long time uh, even to get that small change, but it 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 uh, it's happening, and uh, obviously we need a lot more, but. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, Nick, and uh, and talking with us. Yeah, thank you, and have a great, great night. Okay. All right, so uh, that's it for tonight's show, the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. We'll be back the same time next week uh, with another show. Bye-bye.